0: Hi, I'm Blaise Brosnan, and I'm your host for this episode of M.I.R. Meets. Today I'll be speaking with Elizabeth Brunig. For those who don't know, Elizabeth Brunig is a writer on religion and politics for The Atlantic, who is most famous for arguing forcefully for the revival of the Christian left. Brunig argues that social democracy and Christian politics are reconcilable and mutually reinforcing, as welfare states can provide citizens with the tools they need to live morally dignified lives. In addition to her role as an advocate for the Christian left, Brüning is also known for her journalistic coverage of some of the darker aspects of American life, including mass shootings, lives of death row inmates, and clergy sex abuse. Today, we'll be discussing Brüning's own personal journey towards Catholicism, the potential for building a durable Christian left, and America's culture of violence. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My first question has to do with your own drift from mainline Protestantism, I think Methodism, towards Catholicism. What prompted your journey to become a Catholic, and what attracted you towards Catholicism?
1: Yeah, so I was raised in Texas and uh, was raised a Southern Methodist, and you know was active in my church as a high school student, and went off to college with the expectation that I would continue on in some form uh, of of church participation. But I went to a college that was primarily Jewish. I went to Brandeis. And at the time I was there, the student body was about 60% Jewish. No, it wasn't required to be Jewish to go to Brandeis. Um, It's non-sectarian. You don't have to take any religious courses. But, you know, it's certainly a part of student life that is available to you. And I took a class with a rabbi. It was a very, very interesting course and we were reading some Midrash as part of the uh, part of the course. And after class, I asked him why Christianity didn't have a textual accompaniment tradition like Judaism did. Judaism had all of this historical writing from great figures, thinkers in Judaism who had really put their minds and their souls to the task of understanding these texts that were so central to the religion. And it made so much sense to me that a religion would accrue something like this but I I saw the resources that I had as a Methodist as being relatively thin in comparison. And my professor said, well, as far as I know, Christianity does have such a textual accompaniment tradition. It's the magisterium of the Catholic Church, and it's been built up over a, a couple thousand years. And it, as far as I know, it's pretty significant. And I felt incredibly ignorant. Um, and also that there was a significant... Piece of a sort of Christian history that I was missing, and I went to the library immediately, and I started reading Saint Augustine. And uh, from there, I I remained interested for the remainder of my college career in in Augustine, um, in early Christianity, in late antiquity, um, and and I just began to drift towards you know, the stuff I was always reading about, just as I was reading about Augustine's conversion, I myself was converting.
0: That's such an interesting story. And I read that before, you know, your experience of becoming Catholic, as a result of, uh, you know, taking a course in, in Talmudic interpretation, which is absolutely fascinating. And that kind of segues into my uh, my next question, which is, um, there's a common conception that much of traditional Catholic theology relies on ostensibly rigorous theological arguments for this, the existence of God, like Thomas Aquinas and Summa Theologica, whereas many Protestant theological thinkers, not all, but, you know, from Luther to Kierkegaard, for instance, place a greater emphasis on a proverbial leap of faith towards religious belief that isn't uh, as burdened by reason, as it were. Is this characterization mostly accurate? And to what extent did your journey towards Catholicism, you know, you already said it reflected an interest in a more kind of methodical, post-textual interpretation than at least some aspects of the Protestant tradition had. So to what extent did your journey towards Catholicism reflect that interest in rigorous theological argument? And to what extent was it a leap of faith in itself?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, you know, to the first part of the question, I think that characterization is, you know, Roughly accurate, it's not necessarily the case that, in particular, American Protestantisms uh haven't had their turns with uh, you know fairly rigorous textual interpretation and 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 seriousness about um biblical texts. I think you you do see that and it does happen, and you see perfectly rigorous American Protestant theology or or you at least see efforts at building. Um, sort of rigorous and integrated American Protestant theologies. I'm thinking especially here about, you know, sort of American reform theologies and so on. Um, there's certainly an effort there. It's at rigor and, you know, and I'm not saying that condescendingly. I mean, I think it's a successful effort in a lot of cases. I think those are some formidable arguments that, you know, are worth having. But at the same time, I do think those theologies tend to be more pessimistic about humanity's capacity to understand God's reason. Um, Catholicism tends to imagine that God's reason is meant to be discovered and is possible to access, is not you know, necessarily beyond us to understand God's purposes and God's reasons. And that gives us uh, the capacity to reason about all sorts of things in our world from a theological basis. And I see a lot more of that in Catholicism in a sort of solid and considered way uh, than I do in Protestant theologies. And so, you know, when I became Catholic at the same time, I was attracted to the history and I was attracted to the rigor and I was attracted to the, the erudition. You know, there was something peaceful about not having to give up as sort of an, you know, one's, uh, tendency to prefer rigor in argument and so forth in order to pursue religion. But on the other hand, when I converted, it was very much for the sacraments and, and that, that's, uh, very much about faith. And and my, you know, continued conversion over the years, the fact that I'm still Catholic, I think, nine years later, you know, has to do with, in my feeling, so so much with the sacraments.
0: And of course, the Catholic tradition seems to me to at least have both. I mean, you have uh, thinkers like Aquinas that have a very optimistic view of mankind's capacity to reason. And then you have even earlier foundational texts like Augustine, for instance, who is much more of a skeptic, um, has much, much more of a pessimistic view of man's capacity without God. And obviously, Augustine was was a major touchstone for you, and we'll come back to that later at the end of the interview. So moving along, I want to talk about the relationship between your political commitments and your religious faith. How do your religious convictions compel you to advocate a social democratic politics? Describe how your religious commitments have influenced your politics.
1: Yeah, I, I think for me, starting from this place of basic Christian faith, there are a few, you know, you have to start with first principles when you think about the economy, what is the purpose of ordering the goods of society? And the purpose of ordering the goods of society is to support human flourishing, right? That's what the goods of the earth are created for. And it's worth, therefore, being intelligent about how we marshal the use of these goods. In that understanding, it it seems to me that civil laws relating to property and ownership are tools that have been created over time and can be modified. And should be modified uh, in order to support human flourishing. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, reordering distribution, which you can call redistribution, but at, at the end of the day, it's all just distribution. Um, to me, it seems like a wise use of an extremely rich nation's money, resources. I mean, um It supports human flourishing. There's a lot of data that suggests when you give people access to more money, they have better life outcomes, they have longer life expectancies, uh, so on and so forth. It supports the common good as well as a lot of individual good uh, and so on and so forth. I think there's a lot of data that reflects that. We can see from the experience of other countries that have social democratic welfare programs that they have higher social trust and a lot of a lot of things, frankly, we could use. And so, you know, whether it's cause or effect, uh, I think is complicated, but it seems that these programs militate in the direction of a lot of things that we would first identify as being the purpose of property to begin with. And so... uh, do these policies mean that there will be fewer extraordinarily rich individuals because of the nature of distribution under these policies? Yes. But when I look at the basic texts of Christianity, I don't I, I don't really see a lot of strong advocacy for the presence of extremely rich individuals. And so I, I feel fairly comfortable with a more compressed, more egalitarian uh, way of ordering the economy.
0: And it's worth noting that even, uh, you know, the canonical texts of Uh, classical liberalism, like, uh, you know, John Locke's Second Treatise on Government, for instance, actually can be read to be coming from a very similar position to yours, right? I mean, Locke Locke was a Unitarian. Um, He believed that God granted the earth to man in common um, and that property ownership um, and the right to gain property by mixing one's labor with land should be limited by uh, what, what amount of property is sufficient for someone to live on and whether there was enough property for everyone. So even, even the classical liberal tradition can be pushed in that direction, in part because it has that theological grounding, um, at least initially.
1: Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. and And Locke is... He's taking that position precisely because it is such an ingrained, at his point in the Enlightenment, such an ingrained Christian position. It's sort of the position of everybody, including Thomas Aquinas, all the way through Christian history. Uh, and he is, in some ways you know creating greater liberties for property owners Uh, he implies this metaphysical transformation that takes place when you sort of mix your labor with the land that it becomes a part of you and that the rights of a person therefore begin to extend to property this is a a sort of transformation that i find fascinating and philosophically poignant in intellectual history but you know i think it, it just goes to say without going too far down a rabbit hole here that um you know this is a standard Christian position. It's a historic Christian position, and I, I don't find it out of keeping with the Christian politics of, uh, you know, a fairly broadly and plainly interpreted Christianity.
0: What concrete policy proposals uh, should a Christian left advocate in your view?
1: I always point to my husband's policy proposal pack called the Family Fund Pack, which is a series of policies pertaining to family welfare. Right. Uh, it has to do with children and school lunches. It has to do with maternity leave. The um, only thing transfers that families need um, and that support the flourishing of um, people who aren't working. So that means people who are doing care work, children, students, etc. And these programs would help all of those people. Um, so my husband is actually a policy writer. He writes policy for Congress. That's part of his job. And uh, I always just point people to Matt Brunig's Family Fun Pack. That's a great series of policies for a Christian leftist to support.
0: And how would those policies, uh, policies that a Christian left would support, especially those focused on the family, how would they differ? How how might they differ from the prescriptions of a, of a secular leftist?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, for the Christian left, when you're talking about, um you know, being a member of the left, you're talking mainly about economic policy um, and you're talking about a sort of broadly egalitarian and inclusive policy. Um, but the Christian left won't necessarily be um, one-to-one with the secular left on everything. So um, the secular left, for instance, you know, there is some disagreement about whether there should be the child care stipends for stay at home moms, right? There's some argument over this on the secular left because some people feel that that is um, rewarding uh, a sort of retrograde behavior, you know, staying at home instead of being in the labor force. From the perspective of the Christian left, you're just trying to get money to the child right so it has to go through the parent because children don't have bank accounts and we can't give children money directly so it doesn't really matter if the parent is paying to have the child taken care of or if the parent is taking care of the child themselves there should be money for the care of the child would be the perspective of the christian left but the the secular left and i mean i i'm speaking here from experience because i've written about this topic before and i've had arguments with members of of uh, the secular left on this very subject um you know some feel that it There's a heavier balance to be. uh, There's a heavier weight to be placed on the fact that it might incentivize some women to stay out of the labor force. The Christian left, I think, would put the heavier weight on getting the money to the child.
0: That's very interesting. You mentioned that the Christian left's commonalities with the secular left um, are primarily in terms of economic policy. You know, the idea that uh, one can uplift the dignity of the individual through a a robust welfare state, providing people with the tools to flourish. But how do you make sense of uh, certain issues where the Christian left and the secular left very clearly would diverge? Uh, So, for instance, uh, the prototypical Dobbs case. So how do you make sense of the issues around the Dobbs decision and Republican responses to Dobbs at the state level as a Christian leftist? So, I mean, on the one hand, Republican policy responses to Dobbs at the state level, which in some cases encompass total bans on abortion uh, or near total bans. As well as a slew of purported bills that threaten to remove barriers to criminalize to criminalizing women for seeking abortions, um, and that those policies uh, or proposed policies might seem like a flagrant threat to basic civil liberties and the separation of church and state. But on the other hand, if you really believe that life begins at conception, then how would you justify not taking such drastic steps to limit abortions? And how would a Christian leftist like yourself? Go about dealing with this dilemma or similar dilemmas related to uh, policies on divorce, like no-fault divorce or LGBT issues.
1: I mean, I think when you when you think about abortion and other life issues, you know, it's obviously extremely complicated um, and extremely emotional. The thing that seems clearest to me is that the criminal, the penal system, uh, the criminal justice system, putting people in jail, bans, etc., this is just not the way you want to deal with this issue because it's not that kind of problem. People have a problem that they're trying to solve, um, and it's it's more important to help people try to solve this problem than to try to criminalize what they're doing because you're not going to stop them either way. Some of the countries with the highest abortion rates in the world also have abortion bans in place, right? So we just know as a matter of fact um, that it's not necessarily the case uh, that a a ban is going to be efficacious. This is especially the case now that you can get abortion pills in the mail, Right. And uh, it's just it's not the way that you're going to help people solve a problem that they have. Right. Uh, My my proposal has always just been welfare. It's been proposals like the Family Fun Pack, because if you look at polls where women talk about why they have abortions, they overwhelmingly cite economic reasons, financial reasons. So you improve the finances. You're going to save some of those people from having to go through the process of having an abortion, right? Because they wouldn't want to otherwise. This is just what polling data says, right? And you do that peaceably without banning or without, uh, you know, dragging anyone to jail, right? And and to me, it's worth making those marginal reductions and going after demand just because of the kind of problem it is. And it doesn't seem that productive to me to do it the way that conservatives have decided to do it. I mean, you you can see after Dobbs, the net reduction in abortion in the United States has not been as big as the net reduction in abortions under Obama, I think. Just the natural reduction in abortion that happened under Obama, right? And like, this is, this is crazy. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I always said I didn't think using the criminal justice system, the penal system and bans to try to handle this problem made sense. I still don't think that. I still think the answer is welfare and going after demand.
0: So your answer is essentially, in, in keeping with uh, the Catholic tradition of compassion and charity, an approach that um, uplifts you know, women who may uh, be considering having abortions through financial support, or a more broad welfare state prevent them from considering it in the first place, uh, right. rather than um, simply a punitive approach.
1: Right. Trying to solve Uh, The demand, especially because we know there are a large bulk of cases where people are facing abortion because they are in financial distress. Yes.
0: And so moving along, despite a long and storied history of Christian socialism, or Christian social democracy, from the very early roots of socialist ideals um, in Christian communalist sects, such as the levelers and the diggers in England in the 17th century, and the formative influence of Christian ideals on social democratic parties, from the British Labor Party to Canada's own NDP, you know, the, the guy who passed uh, you know universal healthcare in Canada, Tommy Douglas, was an ordained minister. He was the premier of Saskatchewan, and he helped uh, get the, the plan passed in Saskatchewan and nationally. So the Christian left, in spite of all that history, the Christian left in the Anglosphere has found itself in a, in a relatively weak position lately. Uh, many leftists identify as, you know, secular and very skeptical of religion's influence on politics. Why do you think this is?
1: Yeah, there's there's been a demographic change. Um, I have a friend at the University of Central Illinois named Ryan Burge who who does religious data study and um, you know using big polling data sets. And uh, you know, one of the trends that he's pointed out that I think is is key to understanding American uh, religion right now is that. Essentially, people who are left-leaning, liberal-leaning, um, have just left American Christianity in large numbers. They've just departed from it, and they've begun identifying as nothing in particular, nothing specific, unaffiliated, etc. Um, and uh, this has concentrated American Christianity uh, in a conservative way, and it has sort of in the in these extremely polarized. Uh, political environs has labeled Christianity a sort of property of the right. Um, And as more left-leaning people uh, become exposed to this idea that Christianity is a property of the right, you can expect that more of them will continue to leave Christianity uh, and that Christianity will increasingly sort of concentrate in the hands of right-leaning people. Um, Right. And then this is just sort of becomes a self-reinforcing trend. And this is something that uh, Brian Burge, I said, has pointed out. I think he's got a book coming out on it. Um, And to me, it's one of the more disturbing trends uh, in American politics. There was a piece on it in The New York Times recently by Jessica Gross called Christianity. Does Christianity have a branding problem? Uh, But she interviewed lots of people who left Christianity because they feel it's too right wing and they just feel it's right wing associated, that it belongs to right wing people. And so that's just where we are right now with American Christianity. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the story of the evangelicals and the Republican Party through the 80s, through the aughts. A lot of it has to do with the Bush presidencies and, and, you know, a, a lot of it has to do with you know the way the christian left began in the united states which was always in a in a kind of weakened form relative to its european counterparts you know it it never really had as as robust a a presence um, as its european counterparts so yeah that's where i'd say we are
0: and i wonder if in addition to the branding problem you discussed Another major challenge to the Christian left is just the massive wave of secularization we've seen in the past 10, yeah. 15 years that's occurring on the right as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I remember as a kid, there were far more overtly religious appeals by the Obama era Democratic Party mm-hmm. than, uh, you know, than there are today. And far more, of course, on the right, you know, than we see today on the right as well. So yes. I wonder if, you know, if liberals are you know, just somewhat less religious to begin with, let's say, the wave of secularization that's going on. In the U.S., which is quite historic, and I wonder if uh, that's also pushing Christianity out of politics.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think uh, secularization is part of that. Is part of that sort of migration story uh, that we're telling. You know, there, there. there's two sides of the same coin here, um, and and that also has has just changed the place of Christianity. Uh, in the West and Christianity in American politics, but in particular, you know christianity was was already, I think, weaker on the left flank and and is is rapidly weakening there for sure,
0: and do you think the Christian left has made any mistakes in their advocacy that have contributed to the current relative unpopularity of christian oriented activism on the modern left today?
1: I mean, I think, uh, you know, the Christian Left has never been an analog to the Christian right, uh, so to speak. you know it's 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 never been a voting block or a donor block uh, of such tremendous value that politicians were really fighting over it. You know it's always been characterized along different you know sort of fracture lines as opposed to being a unified block. so I, I don't really think it's like a strategic misstep. Uh, that led to this sort of state of affairs. I think it's sort of larger societal trends that are, you know, sort of beyond the control of any one activist or visionary. Yeah.
0: And what are some strategies that you think, uh, we're not talking about policy strategies, like we discussed before, but political strategies for Christian leftists to to advocate that for, uh, in a left that's, you know, increasingly very contemptuous of uh any kind of religious influence on politics, you know, a very strong sense of separation of Christian state. What are some strategies that Christian leftists can use to, uh, to show that, Hey, Christianity has something to say.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think you just do your thing quietly and you contribute to other people's causes. You know, I mean, what I mainly do is point to my husband's policy writing and policy ideas when he's not religious. Um, He's a secular guy, but you know, he's right on the policy merits, and uh, I support those. You know, I think there are other projects going that need support. You contribute, you support, you be a helper, you do what you can. I mean, I write, I, I talk about my ideas, and I try to convince people in in society of uh, of some of my, uh, you know, observations uh, about humanity regarding mercy and forgiveness and so on. But um, otherwise, you just do what you can, you know, I. Nobody has to be Superman.
0: Going into the uh, more recent articles you've written that also link back to uh, to your theological commitments, um, in a recent piece, you write out the consequences of a culture of fear in America that breeds violence. And you said the recent case of Jordan Neely on the subway as an example of such a culture of fear, you know, where in this case, Neely was strangled on the subway simply in response to what seemed to be implicit threats of violence from him. And you know, he's behaving in a semi-threatening way and someone, you know, a Marine, ex-Marine, it may have inadvertently killed him. So how should we remedy uh, such a culture of fear where any kind of moment of, of danger, sense of danger, yields, uh, you know, potentially vigilante response? And think that culture of fear is, uh, you know, A, you know, is really solved by policy, like, for instance, you know, restricting, uh, you know, gun use, for instance, uh, you know, gun control, uh, because there are so many more violent threats in America than, say, in other first world countries, that it's natural to assume Americans would develop a vigilante culture. Or do you think the way to deal with this issue is more from a communitarian lens, which you seem to be suggesting in your article, that has to do with really us developing more of a sense of charity towards one, one another? So what is the balance
1: yeah, I I mean I think the 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 balance is the question. I think there are definitely concrete policy measures you can take to sort of turn the temperature down. Um and one of those that I talk about in the article is is regarding guns, right? It's the it's the number of guns circulating and the amount of gun crime in part that scares people so much that there's constant news about these sort of spectacular public shootings, right? These mass event, you know, that happen and that g- garner a bunch of attention, garner a bunch of media coverage and um, throw everything into chaos for a few days, and then they go away. But um, people are are sort of constantly put on alert uh, about these kinds of incidents. And so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, because there is a, a distributed throughout the 300 million people in America, there are going to be at least a handful of people who are are way too keyed up, who are way too freaked out based on what's on the news or what's going on, um, who who respond way too strongly uh, to frightening stimuli, they're gonna they're gonna respond. And um, you know, you have someone who's having a mental health crisis who is is acting erratically, and that becomes a, a really horrific situation really quickly. How do you prevent that situation? I mean, I think a lot of people have written about this better than I can. And a lot of it has to do with resources for somebody like Jordan Neely with outreach to people like him. And I mean, I think that is a completely valid and fair place to begin when thinking about preventing something like this. But I can't help but think the overall, you know, tenor pitch of society, the the angst is too high, the fear. Yeah.
0: I, I relate to that view in a lot of ways. I moved, I'm, I'm dual Canadian and American and I've gone back and forth, uh, basically my, my entire life. And now I live in Canada. I study at McGill and I feel just in Montreal, there's much greater sense of social cohesion. You know, when you're on the subway, you know, I don't feel fear of, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, street violence or, you know, some rare one in a million, you know, mass shooter incident, you know, those incidents are very rare in Canada and, I think it's uh I mean I think it's a couple of things. one is you know you have you have less economic inequality and less underprivileged uh populations, but also I think you have a much greater sense of social trust in Canada, yes. and I don't quite know what the ingredients is for that, but I hope to find out,
1: yeah, I think those are all uh very very real things that you're experiencing there uh with respect to differences between Canada and the US and I mean you experience them in lots of different places you go relative to the US um sorry um
0: <laughs> it's sort of a, a final question um you've touched on the the seminal influence St. Augustine's had on your thinking um a number of times. And what I find interesting about that is uh you're an ordinary, uh, you know, kind of uh, um, Christian leftist who's, you know, compelled to uh, promote, you know, uh, kind of redistributive policies to, uh, you know, benefit the good of humanity. Uh, they might cite Aqu- Aquinas quite a bit, but Augustine is a little unusual simply because he's so pessimistic about the possibility that politics will allow human flourishing, basically. You know, he thinks the city of man is ephemeral, essentially. And so actually, it's very interesting. I mean, a lot of thinkers who are skeptical of solitaristic politics, political theorists like Hannah Arendt, Judith Schickler, my own professor at McGill, Jacob Levy, who's a libertarian, they cite Augustine as a skeptic of uh, politics of solidarity. So where does Augustine influence your uh, political commitments? And do you agree with that interpretation or do you think it's flawed?
1: Well, I think Augustine has all these, you know, fairly pessimistic expectations about humanity, which are are fair and are especially fair considering the political context that he wrote in at the late Roman Empire. He himself had fairly productive relationships with political authorities, actually, as a bishop of Hippo, and uh, uh, was able to marshal Roman imperial authority to great ends in his personal life. Uh, as a as a bishop, and so uh, I think he's different in theory than in practice. But uh, as as much as it would be great to sort of tease him about that, I think the thing to remember about Augustine is he has this vision of of an unfallen man and unfallen politics, and then he has this vision of fallen man and fallen politics. And um, you you can understand that it's fair to be pessimistic while still understanding that you're doing the right thing right? Pessimism about the human condition or human's ability to do what prophets say and so on and so forth doesn't entitle you to just wantonly do evil. You still have to fight the good fight. Uh, Christianity is about fighting the good fight morally. I was told when I was in the process of converting to Catholicism, right? It's about showing up and making your best effort, right? And so we're never actually excused from the uh, obligation to try to figure out what the best thing is and to try to do it. And this seems to be that to me.
0: I mean, other thing about Augustine specifically also is that I think it's overlooked frequently is he's a Neoplaton. He's influenced by Neoplatonism heavily and his treatment of politics in some way uh, downstream of that. So if you read his political writings, he seems to argue that politics, even if it's frequently, you know, practiced, um, you know, in a very flawed way because of original sin, it is a temporal good that's granted by God for the betterment of humanity. So even he, even there's some tension within, within him uh, between a skepticism of, you know, any kind of final earthly justice because of original sin, but also a sense that politics and our own kind of conditions for building communal life are uh, goods granted by God, albeit inferior to the goods in the city of God.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. That there are temporal earthly goods and, and this may well be one of them or one that we can make a good of. Right. I think Augustine has this beautiful line where he says, you know, before men were fallen, we were made to be shepherds of cattle, not rulers of men, you know. But now things are what they are. And so we have to cope with that.
0: Yeah. And then finally, do you see a tension between your uh, your own very deep concern for the fallenness of human nature? Um, I mean, your choice of subjects, uh, you know, very kind of morbid subjects, reminds me a little bit of Flannery O'Connor, the Catholic writer. Death row inmates, you know, uh, clergy abuse, suicide, mass shootings. Do you see a tension between your own awareness of the fallness of human nature and your advocacy of, uh, of social democratic politics? Or how do you link those two?
1: Well, I mean, I am, uh, you know, just a, someone who goes towards suffering um, to try to help you know so that's my beat wherever people are suffering wherever people are going through something horrible i try to help if i can so whether that's a girl who was gang raped and nobody believed her or someone who was molested by a catholic priest or someone who uh, was involved in a mass shooting or somebody who's on death row is about to be executed these are all just to me different people who are suffering in different contexts and uh, this makes perfect sense to me within the context of my faith as a kind of vocation in this world. Um, and, I mean, when I think about my politics, I just think they would primarily benefit people who who really need the help, you know, especially stuff like universal health care, universal access to psychiatric care, um, sort of programs that would, you know, hopefully um, reduce, you know, net violence, reduce net poverty. These are programs that a lot of the subjects I interact with could really desperately use. And, you know, I would like to see a more humane world for all of us.
0: So essentially you're arguing that there's, you know, uh, no, not, no, 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 no real, uh, incompatible tension between awareness, uh, of the imperfection of man and that some people will always suffer and a sense that we can uplift humanity as a whole through uh, economic policy, redistributive policy.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you go to the suffering, you accompany people, you help them how you can in your life, but also, you know, you try to build a world that is overall lower in suffering for everybody. Yeah, I don't think there's any incompatibility there.
0: Thanks so much. Those are all the questions we have for today. That was Elizabeth Brunig. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, guys.